These are discussions, by the way, that we never even imagined we would have to have. But you sometimes have to ask whether or not it is responsible to air the words of the president of the United States. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Remember that our show is available on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. So, Ed, today our guest is Jonathan Carl. Uh, let me give the introduction of him first. Uh, he's an American political journalist. He has covered every major assignment in Washington, D.C., including the White House, Capitol Hill, the Pentagon, and the State Department. He's reported for more than 30 countries covering U.S. politics foreign policy in the military. He's contributed to various ABC news programs, including Good Morning America and Nightline, and has interviewed countless public figures, including the president, obviously. Carl is the chief White House correspondent for ABC News. He's a former president of the White House Correspondents Association, and he is the author of the 2020 book, Front Row at the Trump Show. Yeah, it's a really good book. It takes you right into the halls of the West Wing and puts you in conversations with the president, in the Oval Office. And so it's really, it's it's hard to put down once you start getting into the stories. And the central tension or confrontation that, that runs through the book is, is laid out right in Jonathan's introduction to it, which I'll read. And, and he says, how do you report on a president who will look you in the eye and tell you something he knows is not true? How do you maintain standards of fairness and objectivity when reporting on somebody who has branded you a traitor to your country? That's the, that, that's the struggle. People like Jonathan, who are covering this administration and doing the hard work of journalism in, in this era, um, are, are facing. So let's get right to it. He's the author of the 2020 book, Front Row at the Trump Show and the host of the podcast, Powerhouse Politics, with ABC political director Rick Klein. Jonathan Carl, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Hey, Jonathan. So uh, Perry and I really enjoyed your book. You know, uh, reading it, I was thinking to myself, this guy has, has the dream job. And you really take the reader into the halls of the West Wing, uh, the briefing room, the Oval Office, and it's, and it's fantastic. And one thing I really appreciate that comes through in reading the book is the reverence that you have for our democracy and the role that journalism plays in it. And that, I think, really comes through. And so um, congratulations on, on capturing that. I think it's, I think it's a great – I think really genuinely thought it was a great book. So the story, you know, there's so many great stories from the book. I kind of want to go back to the beginning because you were covering Trump in New York City in the early 90s when you were with New York Post. And that portion of the book resonated with me because I lived in New York City most of my adult life. And I remember the late 80s and early 90s and Trump as a personality, as a character. But I mean, if you lived through that era in New York City, it's really astonishing to be where we are right now. So talk about those years. And what I'm particularly interested in is he's so antagonistic to the press, but he's really built his entire life off of seducing, cultivating the press. There's no question about that. Uh, first, let me just say uh, thank you for your kind words uh, about the book. I really wanted to convey more than anything what it's like, what it's been like. I, I didn't do it to render judgment uh, on, on Donald Trump necessarily, although there are some some pretty firm judgments, particularly in the, in the end of the book. Um, and and I, I do feel reverence for uh, our democracy, and I, I am still – in awe every time I am able to walk into the U.S. Capitol building or the Supreme Court or the White House. Uh, as, as a young kid, um, I traveled uh, a, a couple of times to Washington, D.C., and I remember being told that when the light is on on top of the Capitol dome, that, um, that Congress is in session. And so I would always look for it, and I would, you know, would, want to be in there and want to check it all out. I, I so it, it, but, but that has not ended no matter how long I've had the opportunity to do this job. I, I have always felt that kind of awe, uh, re- regarding, uh, Trump back in, in those days. I mean, I, I think he, I think he nailed it. He, he was, he was kind of a cartoon figure, uh, you know, to, to me. I mean, I, I, my ambition was to be a political reporter. I started at the New York post as a general assignment reporter, 
Um, so I, I, you know, Trump was a kind of a distraction and a sideshow and kind of an entertaining one at that to, to, to me. I mean, to give you an idea, I, I tell the story in the book um, of I, I wrote a book about the uh, my first book back in 1995 about the uh, the militia movement um, in the wake of the Oklahoma City uh, bombing. And it was a very serious and weighty subject, obviously. Um, and I, I, I took a few months off from my job and, and wanted to research who these people were, the Michigan militia and the, and the like. Um, and uh, when, when it came time to hold my book party, though, I, I, I planned a book party at a, at a, at a brewery in, in Manhattan called Heartland Brewery. And um, I wanted to have fun at my book party. You know, this is like, you know, my, my, my first book. And I was putting together my invitation. And I had some of my friends as kind of a gag give me over the top quotes about the book. And, um, and then I, uh, I, just on a whim, I, I, I reached out to Donald Trump uh, <laughs> to ask him to give me a quote. Um, I, you know, I'd, I'd covered him on some stories that I'd describe in, in the book, but I, I so I'd, I'd gotten to know him a little bit. And, um, and he gave me, well, he agreed to give me a quote. First, he asked me to send the book over, um, and I, which I did. And, and then he, he said, sure, he would give a quote, but he wanted me to write it. <laughs> So, so I, uh, I, I wrote a quote uh, that said, uh, what a book. Jonathan Carl is tough, fair, and brutally honest. And that is my first and one and only time operating as a, uh, as a ghostwriter for Donald Trump. But, but it, it, it gives you the idea of the level of seriousness with which you know, I and others saw him. I mean, he was the kind of guy you'd call just for an invite. That, and this, this was not, you know, this was, this was a party of for my friends and family really this wasn't like i mean it was just like it was like a gag um uh but the idea that i that that person who i had gotten to know as a you know very young reporter for the new york post would go on to um do what he has done is was just i mean it was the furthest thing from my mind yeah, he was such a creature of the tabloid culture of New York City. You know, plant getting getting into page six was such a big deal, and and you know it was sort of like a almost daily circus. Um, did he ever call you pretending to be his own press secretary, John Barron? You know, he never did that. I think in part because I knew him. Uh, the closest experience that I had was was when I did uh, this story I described in the opening of the book about Trump Tower because Michael Jackson was staying there um, and he had just uh, secretly married Lisa Marie Presley. And, uh, you know, I, I did this story on why, why the most famous newlyweds in the world would be holed up at Trump Tower of all places. And, uh, and he gave me this tour from basement to penthouse of Trump Tower. And he told me all this stuff and he, and he, and he told me that I could quote him as a, a source in the Trump organization. <laughs> So, so, so he wasn't an anonymous source, uh, you know, uh, but, but, but I, you know, I, partly because I, I knew him at that point. So he didn't try to try to do the Jonathan Barron thing, but, you know, but to get to your point about how he was, he was entirely a creature of, of the news media and, and the tabloids and television. And he, I mean, I was a nobody. I was as junior a reporter as you could be at the New York post. So the idea that, you know, I could get him on the phone within minutes. The idea that I could call him up and ask him to do something as trivial as give me a quote for a, for an invitation shows you how he, he courted everybody in the news media. He was the most media-friendly public figure that I had ever encountered and still to this day. And, and, and the guy that calls the media the enemy of the people is in some ways the most media-friendly public figure I, I've still ever encountered. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about the title of your book. I thought a lot about it because originally I thought that's great alliteration, but it's dead on accurate that, um, you know, this is the Trump show. You know, you see it from the beginning. What Trump is focused on is the show of it all. He's focused on his ratings. He's focused on your ratings in his dealings with the press and in your dealings with him and his governance. All of his negotiations with foreign leaders are about how he's going to be perceived. You've got some great stories in the book about his interactions with Australia, with with Mexico early on in his administration, uh, what their position means to him, what what everything means to his status. You know, a friend of mine once said, everyone thinks that Trump doesn't care what people think, but nothing could be further from the truth. It's all that he thinks about. And I think your book shines a light on this. But the show is all about Trump. 
he needs an audience for the show to work. You know, you have this great story about how he reacts when he finds out that a special prosecutor has been named. You know, he says, this is going to be terrible for me, not for the country, not for what can be done, but for him. What do you think it says about us that it's taken us so long to realize that this is really about Trump and only about Trump and not about us? Well, first of all, the I want to be clear because some people have misunderstood this in the title. The, the Trump show, that's not the way I see it or the way I think a lot of people see it. It's the way he sees it. He saw his campaign. He sees his presidency, I, I truly believe, as the world's greatest reality TV show. Just yesterday, uh, he was tweeting about how upset the, so, you know, the quote, fake news media is going to be after he's gone because you know he's been so tremendous for ratings and and viewership and readership and you know it's you know it's, so he 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 programs his administration like a like a show he tries to give you cliffhangers on a regular basis oh we'll see uh, coming on saturday you know we'll see i'm gonna announce this big thing often by the way he doesn't go along it's 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 often like those teases in television that don't that don't pan out you know reminds me a little bit of the i remember a cartoon way back when um of, of making fun of, of local news and, you know, showed the newscaster, uh, you know, um, saying, is there a deadly monster under your bed? Story at 11. Is there a, a deadly monster about to kill you under your bed? Story at 11. Is there a, and then, and then, and then 11 o'clock comes and it's like, so is there a deadly monster under your bed? No. Uh, and other news, you know, it's like he, he, he plays it out. But I, you know, I, I think that it remind that there was a book uh, written by a sociologist years ago, uh, Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death, about um, th- th- that I think really, and this was a, a book written, you know, you know, way before Trump was a uh, was a political figure, uh, but 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 talks about how you know we we've turned everything into entertainment and and warning of the danger of it um and and i think that you know i think a lot of people did realize from the beginning that 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 that, that he was all about himself i mean it's hard not to know that i mean when you see he puts his, he puts his name on everything he's you know it's all about trump he talks about himself in the third person he relishes every moment he can have in the spotlight he seeks out the spotlight uh as a uh developer when he was building Trump Tower. Uh, he um, he got some really negative press for um, um, uh, de- destroying uh, the, these Art Deco facade that had been on the building that was taken down. That was considered a you know kind of an historic piece of New York that should be preserved, and he just had it destroyed. And it, he got all this negative press. But he his his attitude on it was, look, it was press. It put my name out there. It, it, it let everybody know that I was building this great big project on Fifth Avenue. That was the, uh, the Bonwit Teller building. Yeah, yeah. It was a beautiful. It was a beautiful uh, building. Beautiful building, and there were and 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 there was a real movement to 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 preserve uh, to preserve those facades and and those. That's uh, one. That's one of many unknown stories from those days in New York. There's there's the Marvin Rothman story. Uh, he was the analyst at at Jenny Montgomery Scott who who put a negative rating out on the Taj Mahal bonds. And so Trump got him fired. You know, there was the, the, there was the Central Park Five, all these things from those days in New York, people really don't talk about anymore or forget. There was a real dark side to Trump back then, which you were probably much, much more aware of than I was. I just saw him as that cartoon figure. Yeah. Uh, like you said earlier, you know, harmless, not particularly serious. You know, he's like a, you know, he's like a, he's like a salesman. Um, for his own brand, but you know, but he, but there was, there, there was always a, there was always a dark side that just wasn't clear, and and except unless you were dealing with him, and you were one of those contractors that got stiffed, and you know had to go back and sue to get paid, and then had to you know take pennies on the dollar, and you know all of that. Yeah, Fiona Hill uh, called it the hyperpersonalization of the presidency, and it reminded me. That reminds me of another story from your book. Uh, uh, you talk about um, his first press conference and a reporter uh, who was an Orthodox Jew had asked a, a very straightforward question with respect to anti-Semitism and some attacks that had taken place recently in the country. And he interpreted that as very like an attack against him very personally. I think the quote in the book is that 
that Trump said, responded, I am the least anti-Semitic person that you've ever seen in your life. And number two, I'm the least racist person you've ever seen in your life. But the reporter was simply asking what the government was going to do in response to these attacks, not accusing Trump of being anything. It was such a strange moment and such an uncomfortable moment. And it was his first full-on press conference. He had done a few press conferences where you take two questions from the foreign press, two questions from the U.S. press with a foreign leader. But this was his first solo press conference that he called on something like 17 different reporters. And um, Jake Turks was the reporter. And, I, and he was very sympathetic to Trump very sympathetic to Trump. He, he prefaced his question by pointing out that Trump uh, had had Jewish grandchildren and he was his 80, you know, and he it was, it was very friendly. Uh, and, and but there had been this spate of, uh, of anti-Semitic attacks uh, on, on, you know, um, cemeteries, on, on Jewish senators. And you know, he was just asking, like you said, what, what he would do about it. And it was so strange. I, I still, I, I mean, I still don't fully understand why Trump took such incredible offense to it. Um, it was a moment that, that, that truly, truly struck, stuck out to me in those early days. But, you know, and by the way, and by the way, you know, he was asked just, just, you know, within, in the wake of the debate in Cleveland uh, and his refusal to, uh, uh, to condemn white supremacists, and he, you know, he was asked again at the White House, um, and his answers were, were kind of echoes of that. He like, he's, like, he's like annoyed when you're asking him to condemn something that is so easy to condemn. He gets annoyed by it. Or when you're asking him to speak to a group uh, about something that they're going through, which is what the reporter was asking uh, at that first press conference. And it's also what Peter Alexander was asking during one of the initial task force press briefings regarding coronavirus when he said, what do you say to the American people who are hurting? That really is kind of a, an on the tee softball question. What do you say yeah. to someone who's hurting? And his response, yeah. His response was about him. You know, yeah. I, you know I, I'd say you're a nasty reporter. Yeah. That's yeah. a nasty question. You know, with the, the press under constant attack and of course the scrutiny is, is as high as it's ever been. Um, walk us through just sort of the blocking and tackling of your profession. You know, I think it'd be useful to understand just how high a standard uh, something needs to be for you to put it on television. Walk us through what that process is a little bit, like the verification. Who do you answer to if you make a mistake? And just what it, what it takes, what you guys have to go through to, to say, okay, we can air this. Thank you for asking that because one of the, one of the true slanders that, that, that Donald Trump has done over and over again of a free press is this notion that major news organizations, reporters from major news organizations just make it up. They just make it up. He says, you know, they invent sources. They just totally make it up. I mean, my Lord, um, we, we go through, I mean, at, at ABC, um, you know, there, there, there is a, there is a process. We have editors, we have, we have a whole, uh, we have a whole section of our news division called standards and practices where if, if, if the story we are doing is, is sensitive in any way, um, you know, we, we, there, there, there are people whose sole job is to make sure that a, we are, um, we are correctly sourcing what we are saying that we are fair in our descriptions, you know, and, and, and fair in our, in our treatment of whoever we are reporting on. And we have a legal team as well uh, that, uh, for stories that are sensitive to, to take another set of, of, of eyes. That's in addition to the uh, executive producers and senior producers on each show that go over the scripts. Now, look, there are mistakes. Mistakes happen. Every major news organization, I mean, has a, the equivalent of corrections. You know? but, but the key thing is that when mistakes are made, they are acknowledged. You know, we... Um, there was one that Trump loves to talk about, you know, over and over again uh, uh, with with my former colleague, Brian Ross, who, uh, you know, reported something uh, incorrectly uh, and ended up costing him his job. Uh, you know, we did an internal investigation. We looked into it and it was wrong. He, he didn't go through the it was, it was a live thing. So he didn't go through the, the normal process. 
um, and it was it was corrected, and um, and he actually it actually in that case cost him his job. Um, I, I talk about this story with Sean Spicer. That you know we we um, you know Nightline did a story where um, a- after Spicer had done his uh, you know the, the the first press conference where he lied about crowd size and he berated the uh, the White House press. Well, that was on a Saturday. Remember, Trump got sworn in. On, on Friday, uh, Saturday, the press conference about how big the crowd size was. Uh, Monday was the f- nightline went on the air. And in the piece on it, they had an interview with Ari Fleischer, George W. Bush's press secretary, one of them. And uh, they, they used a clip of Fleischer saying, you know, criticizing Spicer for his press conference. And it was fine. And it was an accurate quote. And we did it. But Spicer took tremendous offense because the full quote, he said he criticized Spicer, but then he, but then he said, you know, Spicer made up for it on Monday and had a great performance in his, in his next press conference. And, you know, you know, hopefully that'll be what we'll see in the future with him. So we only used half the quote. Now that's the kind of thing like standards and practices would say, you know, you probably don't do that. You want, you want to use the full quote. You could argue that uh, a Republican press secretary saying something good about a Republican press secretary is not news. What was news was the first part of the quote. So it's kind of a borderline case. But, yeah, you should – all things being equal, you should use the full quote. Well, Nightline went to, to – you know, Spicer blew up. He screamed at me about it. It wasn't my story. I had nothing to do with it. I suggested to Nightline that, that they should, you know, air the full quote the following day. And, and they did. And, and they actually went on. And they, uh, on air the next day, said we should have played the full quote. I mean, Spicer was still talking about that, like, months into his term as White House press secretary. But anyway, you know, it, 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 there are, we, we do go through a serious process. If we have anonymous sources, which sometimes you have to have, there's usually somebody senior at ABC News who I will tell who my source is. Um, so it's not just me going on, on, on the air with something. It is, it is vetted. It is discussed. We take being, uh, accurate very seriously because we know that if you, if you do something that is inaccurate, it jeopardizes your own credibility and your ability to do your job. Plus it's bad to be inaccurate, but beyond that, it it makes you a less effective reporter. Yeah. And it adds fuel to the, uh, attacks. Exactly. I think Jennifer Griffin did a a real service to your all's industry when she said, you know, my anonymous sources are not anonymous to me. And um, I think that does such a good job of pulling everybody back from this narrative that if it's anonymous, it must not be true. Well, you know, there's a story I talk about in the book and I actually named the names. I actually named an anonymous source because it, 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 it had to be done. They hold a briefing. They held a briefing. It was on North Korea. They held a briefing in the, in, in, the, in the White House briefing room. It was a background briefing, and the White House set the rules. And the rules were this official, you can only call a senior administration official. You can't quote him by name. So he did it. People did stories. The president went out and, and accused reporters of making up the official. So the official doesn't exist. They're making it up. So I named the official. Uh you know, and, and describe the whole circumstances and how the White House set up the, the ground rules. I mean, often when you hear, by the way, uh, an anonymous source as a senior administration official, not always, but often it's because the White House, this White House, previous White Houses did the same thing, uh, set up what are called background briefings for reporters. And those are the ground rules. And those are ground rules set by the White House. So the rule that I set up is a corollary now. If you lie about it, it's no longer off the record. <laughs> it's, a good you know, it's no longer on background. You, you said there's some interesting little tidbits in your book that caught my attention that I, I, I wanted to ask you about, specifically around the quote that you often see it, find that there are Trump boosters and Trump haters posing as journalists in the press room. And you mentioned going back to that very first press conference that uh, a high schooler named Kel- mm-hmm. Kyle Mazza, who apparently started a, a, a some sort of blog or, or newsletter in his basement and still lived with his parents, was in the White House uh, press conference. Walk us through how you get a press pass and how this is controlled and who is in control of it. Universal News Forever was Kyle Mazza's uh, 
<laughs> and he went in and, and he asked the question after um, after Jake Turks got, yeah. you know, got attacked by the president. His question was about the first lady uh, reopening tours of the White House. Right. Listen, I, <laughs> then, I, get, I give the kid all the credit in the world, <laughs> but yeah. you, under, you understand my concern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, God love him. And, 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 and now he's obviously no longer in high school and we still see him around and he's very hardworking and he's a self-starter and, 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 and God bless Kyle. The way it works is um, you have to uh, get cleared in through the White House press office. Uh, so you have to establish, you know, you, 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 you write, you request either a, you know, to, to get a, to get a, a so-called hard pass, which means you can come in and out whenever you want, uh, is more of a process. And you have to say which news organization you're with. You get a letter from your editor or if it's your own, you know, it's, it's, you know, you have to establish that, that you have a, a news organization, but they decided it's the White House press office. White Houses tend to take a very liberal view of what constitutes a reporter and, and let people in, you know, that, that, that perhaps we wouldn't, in, you know, you wouldn't right. think of as traditional journalists. But the corollary of your question is who sits in the briefing room. Now, that is actually controlled. The, the assigned seating is controlled by the White House Correspondents Association. Mm-hmm. And that is a tradition that goes back to the beginning of that. Of, of there having being seats in that briefing room, which which is the end of Reagan was when those seats were, were, were put in there. And the White House Correspondents Association was established in 1914 under uh, Woodrow Wilson. And its reason for existence was to determine who could come in and out of the White House as a reporter. And the reason why this happened is Wilson had uh, press conferences on a almost weekly basis they were different than the press conferences we have now. Obviously, they were not <laughs> they weren't televised, uh, but they were also uh, often off the record. You know, it was it was a uh, he would come in, bring the reporters in, they could ask questions, but they couldn't quote the president directly. And as word got out that he was doing this, all sorts of people were coming in, speculators, you know, hucksters of one kind or another to get information, and you know, for for reasons other than reporting. And a uh, Wilson brought in the the serious you know the, the the main reporters of the time and said look if you guys can't or his 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 top staffer said if you can't get control of this i'm gonna you know the president's gonna stop doing this uh so that's why the correspondence association was set up to basically crunch but we don't do that anymore thank god what a nightmare uh but we do you know control who gets to sit there but that doesn't mean others can't come in and convince the press you know office that they're a real news organization stand at the side or slip into a seat that's not filled and, you know, and ask questions. So you're the former White House Correspondent Association president. How do you all decide, though, which organizations do get those seats? Well, we have a, <laughs> we have a committee uh, uh, that, that does a review every two years, and people can, you know, apply and make their case. Uh, but it's so, – so it's a discussion and a process. But what we try to do is um, ensure that major news organizations with big viewerships and or, or uh, readerships uh, have a place. Uh, we also try to ensure there's a there's a diversity represented on on diversity defined in terms of geographic diversity, um, demographic tr- uh, diversity, diversity of uh, types of of outlets. We have radio, television, magazine, online of various types. And it's, you know, but, it, but it's, it's the deliberations. That, that's our job is to kind of look at that and with all those factors come up with who should be in there. And, you know, it doesn't change too dramatically. Um, remember, one of the big moves was actually uh, under, under Obama where Fox News was moved up to the front row um, because UPI, you know, Helen Thomas used to always have that seat, and UPI basically stopped being a, a, a wire service like it had been. Uh, so there was an opening, and it was under Obama that uh, the Fox News, uh, you know, went to the front row. You tell a story in, in the book where um, you're called into the Oval Office with two of your colleagues. I believe that those two colleagues were also part of the White House Correspondents yes. Association. And you're sitting there waiting for the president, and uh, he's a busy guy. And he comes in and he, he – well, if you don't mind, tell the story because I'm fascinated by what it's, you went through that day. It's so wild. and I, 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 This was almost exactly a year ago. 
actually, we, we were, it was me and my, uh, two of my White House Correspondents Association colleagues, Steve Portnoy and Zeke Miller. We had been meeting with the chief of staff uh, on various issues uh, related to, you know, press access. And they had some complaints about some, you know, these issues, these meetings happen pretty regularly. And the chief of staff said, well, unfortunately, the boss wants to see you. And uh, I said, okay. So uh, he walked us in with the press secretary, walked us into the Oval Office and said, okay, uh, wait here, we'll go get him. And this was a rather surreal experience because the three of us were sitting in the chairs opposite the Resolute desk alone in the Oval Office. There's no Secret Service there. There was no staff there. The doors were closed and we're sitting there alone. Which was a new experience to me, yeah. and we're looking and we're like, you know, and come, you know, we say to each other, so we're definitely being taped, right? I mean, they're definitely watching us. Are they looking to see if we're going to like rifle through? I mean, what, 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 what are they, what are they doing? And it was just a couple of minutes, but it felt like forever. And then the president comes in, and um, a lot was going on. North Korea had just test fired some missiles. There was a hurricane bearing down, five category five hurricane bearing down on Florida. And um, there had just been the, the mass shootings that had happened in Texas and in, and in Ohio. So it was, there was a lot going on in the world. And um, the president basically, you know, comes in, sits down and starts to chew us out about news coverage. Uh, he was particularly mad at me because I had done a story the day before about the hurricane and I had noted that the president had mistakenly said that it was headed towards Alabama, uh, which the National Weather Service corrected and said it wasn't. It was just a short mention in my story uh, that it aired the night before. It had not blown up yet. This was just me. It was my, my little mention. And he called it a bullshit hurricane report. Uh, how did you do that? I was like, well, the National Weather Service, well, that's bullshit. What are you doing? And... Um, we spent 45 minutes to an hour in the Oval Office with him talking about all different things, the White House Correspondents Din- Association dinner, how he actually enjoyed himself back in 2011 when Obama made fun of him and that wasn't why he ran. I mean, it was this, it went, complained about stories that had been in the Washington Post over the weekend. It, it went, and I'm thinking, oh my God, we've got, all, I mean, he's, look at all the, we, we're, we're with him forever. Uh, at one point, Trey Gowdy comes in, a former Republican member of Congress, of course, and he, uh, you know, he calls him by the wrong name, <laughs> he calls him Paul, and and uh, you know, the chief of staff says, "Oh, you know, Trey is here." He wanted to say, "He's like, oh yeah, well, tell Paul I'll, I'll be with him in a little while." You know, he covers up his, his misspeak, but you know, of course, the, the hurricane story went on to dominate news for the entire week. You know, the Sharpie gate and all that, how he corrects that. But that was the beginning of it, was right there, uh, this, this meeting we had with him. Perry and I were fascinated by a story you tell in the book about a, a briefing that you were called to, not just you, but many reporters, a private RNC briefing. Oh, yeah. It, it was an on-the-record briefing, but it was embargoed. Which means that um, everything it said in the meeting, you're able to report on, but you're not allowed to report on it until after the election. Walk us through what happened, because I mean, uh, uh, what what com- what comes out of that for me that's fascinating is not just the knowledge or at least their belief at that time that they were going to lose the election, but it almost seems as if maybe they were happy about it. Or am I reading too much into it? I uh, know I don't think you are reading too much into it. So this is this is Reince Priebus's RNC, uh, and Sean Spicer actually had, had reached out to me to try to set up a time when it, I mean he, this was back when Spicer was a very friendly uh, uh, person to reporters. You know he he did his job. He he would you know criticize press coverage like Republicans and Democrats often do. But but he was he was somebody who had a very good relationship with reporters. And, and we came in, it was the Friday before the Tuesday of, of the election. And um, he wanted to, they wanted to show off how much data that they had. They, they had spent millions and millions of dollars uh, to basically reach out to every voter in the key swing states. And I mean that literally. I mean, they, they did their door knocking, their phone calls, their polling, but they, they, had, they felt that they had a they could literally, you know, you give them an address, they could tell you who is there and who they were likely to vote for. 
or at this point, if they had already voted, if they planned to vote, all of that. And, and they went through state by state, the top uh, dozen states. And it was clear that, that it was adding up to a Trump, you know, to, to really to a Hillary Clinton landslide. I mean, they, they, had, they had the race tied in Georgia. They had Trump losing in Florida, losing in Ohio. It essentially tied, as I recall, in Iowa. I've got all, I, 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 reprint, I, tape, I, 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 I obtained a tape of this briefing which I, I didn't have my own anymore. I, so I, I, I spent like months as I was writing the book trying to see if anybody had an actual tape of it. And the reason why I did that is because Sean Spicer in his book lied about this. Very few people wrote about the briefing because who cared about it after Trump had just won? It was like, oh my God, there was all this other stuff to, you know, right. to report on. But a, a reporter for Politico had written up the briefing about how the RNC had thought that Trump was going to lose. And Spicer, the gall of him in his book, accuses the reporter of lying about it and saying, yeah. we knew, I knew Trump was going to win. I mean, give me a break. This right. was you, their briefing. You wrote about the numbers. They had they they believed based upon their internal numbers, their data showed they would lose Pennsylvania by two points, Wisconsin by three, Florida by two. And they edged out victories to everyone's surprise in all three of those states. And they knew or they really felt the the purpose of this briefing, I guess, was to somehow um, put a positive spin or positive shine on the fact that they had succeeded down ballot, maybe in some places. Yes, Um, there were a couple of reasons. So one, they wanted to show that their candidates, the Senate candidates uh, particularly, um, we're, we're, we're going to do, we're going to outperform the president. So despite the fact the president was doing so bad, you know, our candidates are going to do, you know, are going to do surprisingly well. And, and it was also to show that they knew. And I think there was a little bit of, you know what, you, you're going to come out and talk about how the Republicans got beat, but don't forget, we may not do well in presidential elections, but we do really well you know, down ballot. And, we, and, and and despite the fact that we had this guy at the top of the ticket who was just an awful candidate, Republicans actually managed to score victories elsewhere. That was the purpose of the briefing. Yeah. I mean, Sean Spicer lying about it in his book, when there's so many people that oh. were there and could verify that he is lying is really yeah. puzzling. It's sort of like, why lie when the truth will do? It's one thing to lie when there's something to protect, but there's no shame in and I guess, you know, we were as surprised as other people, but maybe yeah. admitting that afterwards, you know, he viewed it as some sort of threat to his reputation. Um, well, it's, the, it's this, you can never admit that you were wrong or you right. made a mistake ethos of, of Trump land. And it's, it's. Well, you I, said that you said, you know, when I, <laughs> Spicer in the book for me is such a, a character that, that in one hand I resent for the dishonesty to the public and at, this, and at the same time, I sort of pity, you know, you, you said that you had, you, you said in the book that you've known him for 20 years and he was in the main, a good guy. And the, something about him changed as soon as he became press secretary. And we, you know, it reminds me of something Stuart Stevens from the Lincoln project said, you know, we spoke to him recently and um, you know, he, he asked, you know, asked about, these Republicans and why they acquiesced to Trump and, and how sort of people have put their principles aside. He says, he, he just gives a very simple explanation. He says, you know, they're weak. These are weak people. They're nice people. They're the kind of people you might want to live next door to. And, you know, they're, they're perfectly pleasant, but they're weak. Yeah. There's a story that you talk about uh, in the book where Sean Spicer is wondering where the leaks are coming from. And he calls in his own staff. Can you talk about that story? Because I thought that was just riveting. Yeah, I mean, it's just unbelievable. He's paranoid <laughs> about the leaks. And the leaks that Sean, were, uh, Sean was most upset about were always leaks about him or about the press office. So he didn't really care what was affecting the president. It was all about Sean. Um, so he calls in his staff. He's like, damn it, we're going to get to the bottom of this. He had a White House counsel representative with him. He said, I want everybody, put your cell phones in this uh, in this bowl, so they <laughs> put their cell phones in the bowl as they went through to try to figure out who had leaked whatever the little stupid thing that had leaked. It, again, it was trivial, um, and you know, unfortunately for Sean, the uh, the search of the cell phones was did not help. They couldn't figure out who the leaker was. But my favorite part of the story is 
within a very short period of time, the story obliques Politico's got a story about how, you know, Sean called in his staff and told everybody to put their cell phones in the thing. It leaks. <laughs> that actually upset Trump. That got Trump's – Spicer actually, it's one of the things he acknowledges in his book – that Trump was pissed off at him about that. He like called him and was like, well, you dope. That's not how you do it. <laughs> you know, one of the things that you talk about is the relationship between Jeff Sessions as the attorney general and president Trump and Sessions decision to recuse himself from the Russia investigation. President Trump clearly is brutal with, with uh, attorney general Sessions uh, and doesn't seem to ever relent and still hasn't relented to this day on that. Do you correlate that at all with why the GOP senators have seemed to have been or actually have been so quiet over the last four years that they saw a colleague get crushed and they've decided that they're not going to be the next one out of the boat? I think that's part of it. I mean, Sessions, you could you could make a case that Donald Trump doesn't win the Republican nomination without Jeff Sessions. He was the first senator to endorse him. He was by far the most important endorsement early on. Ted Cruz was practically begging for the guy's endorsement. If you go back to the to the de, de, to the debate right before Sessions endorsed, Ted Cruz mentions Jeff Sessions' name like a dozen times. You know, it's gratuitously like you know. And then he's 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 diminished. He's he's diminished to, to nothingness. I mean, the poor guy. You know, he, he he gets embarrassed and humiliated while he's attorney general. He gets fired uh, and then kind of slinks back to Alabama to try to run for his old Senate seat again. Jeff Sessions never had to worry about any of his reelections because it's Alabama and he was popular down there. He could have just, you know, won, won by acclamation. And he has to go and run in a, in, in a Republican primary for his old Senate seat back. And then he loses the Republican primary. You know, I mean, Trump endorses his opponent. It's just, it's, it's like, it's pathetic. And I, and I think that there is, you know, people see not just Sessions, but Sessions and others. Anybody who defied Trump in any way gets kind of destroyed. You saw it also in Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, who were two uh, very conservative, by the way, both of them very conservative uh, members of the Senate, Republicans, uh, who did have the temerity to criticize Trump on some of his more outrageous things in the first year. And, you know, both of them ended up not running for reelection and utterly humiliated. And if they had run, they probably would have lost just like Sessions. You know, he's had this constant assault on the truth. And I know it's made your job and your colleague's job much tougher on uh, your podcast, Powerhouse Politics, with ABC political director Rick Klein. You all had on Corey Lewandowski and David Bossie, and this is right after the debate. And uh, I was fascinated to kind of watch how the ecosystem of President Trump has garnered more of that same approach of an assault on the truth. David Bossie literally is telling you that President Trump did not say Proud Boys, uh, when he was saying stand back and stand by, and you were great. You said, well, play the clip. And in the clip, he says Proud Boys. <laughs> yes, he um, does. You know, you've got a platform. And whoever you put on that platform, it gives them the ability to say what they're going to say. Yeah. How do you decide whether or not to put David Bossy and Corey Lewandowski on that platform? And how do you then make sure that um, you haven't simply given that them that platform unfettered, but that, that they're called out for um, what they're really saying, which is untrue. Well, look, it's, it's not an easy call. Um, and, and, and in this case, it was not an easy call. The debate had just happened. I had booked Bossy and Lewandowski a, a while back because they had this, this book, this book out. Um, and the bottom line is they are, two of the most important political advisors to Donald Trump. Neither one of them works on the campaign or in the White House, but they are in the White House quite frequently to meet with Trump. They're on the phone with Trump regularly. They are, they are very – they're Trump kitchen's cabinet, kitchen cabinet regarding the campaign. So there is some value in, in trying to gain insight into what – Trump is trying to do in this re-election campaign to talk to them. But you know what you're going to get with it, which is, you know, frankly, 
information that's not true. <laughs> you know, I mean, if they're going to say things that are just flatly false. Yeah. Um, but so, but, but after the debate, I wondered whether or not, you know, we should go through with, with the interview, but I decided that there were actually really important questions to put to them, regardless of the quality of the answers. These were important questions to get on the record. What did the president mean when he said, stand back and stand by? It really hadn't been answered. Still hasn't been answered, by the way. Uh, but, uh, you know, okay, you guys are with him. What the hell did it mean? Don't tell me that you think the president did a good job. I, as you recall, I started that interview off by saying, I know you guys are the most loyal supporters of Donald Trump on the planet. We, we don't need to hear what you think of the debate. We already know. So I just want you to tell me what did he mean when he said, you know, and, and, and they went through this answer, which wasn't really an answer. And I think that sometimes there is something to be learned in the, in the non-answer. You know, if the answer is clearly not there, there's probably a reason. And I also wanted to get clarification from them on all this stuff about, you know, respecting the results of the election. So what's he going to do if he loses? I wanted to hear from them. I wanted to get that on the record. But it's a tough call. And I, you know, I, I anchor uh, this week with George Stephanopoulos from time to time. And, you know, I, I, my default position on booking guests is I, it's a serious show. You know, it's a, it's a much bigger platform than, than the podcast. And I, I'm not going to put on, you know, Trump official why just to come in and, and lie over and over again. It's got to be a reason. And, and, and there are some people I won't put on. They often try to put Peter Navarro out there. I don't know if you've seen many interviews with Peter Navarro. They're sure. not particularly illuminating. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if our viewers really need to hear somebody who's just going to come out there and say whatever he thinks is going to please the boss, regardless of whether or not it has any correlation with the truth. Yeah, that is a difficult call. <clears throat> you know, when I think about probably the most grotesque political lie um, of the past several years is the birther one. And I've often wondered, you know, why the news media would even report on it or allow someone in an interview to say it. Now, when I say someone, we all know that while the birther story didn't originate with Trump, he certainly was an accelerant for it. And that's a tough thing, I would imagine, being a reporter. There's no way you cannot air an interview with the candidate of one of the two major political parties. But when that candidate says something that is just straightforward lie, I mean, is there ever a thought to just say, we're not going to air that portion of the interview? Or do you look at it as, well, it's news that he believes this, or it's news that he's saying this is happening, or this is the case. I, I, I just imagine it's just a very difficult thing to weigh. These are discussions, by the way, that we never even imagined we would have to have. But you sometimes have to ask whether or not it is responsible to air the words of the president of the United States, whether it is irresponsible to simply put it out there. So sometimes you think, well, maybe not. And, and sometimes it's, well, we've got to put a lot of context around it. So, you know, maybe more to the, you know, the specific example would be some of the crazier stuff that's being said about, about vote fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, and the integrity of the election. So I can say, I can preface, well, this isn't true and this, that, and the other thing, but his voice comes out really strong, yeah. a lot stronger than mine. Um, so it's, it's challenging. I mean, you know, Bill Barr did an interview with Wolf Blitzer a while back. That was um, really quite a, I mean, it was a very contentious interview, really something else. But Barr at one point mentions this this prosecution in Texas where they caught this guy, they're prosecuting him for, you know, uh, you know, voting. I forget. It was like 1200 times on something. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out there is no such prosecution. He, it was dead wrong. And the justice department meekly said, Oh, the, you know, the attorney general was given some bad information before the interview. And, you know, we, we acknowledge that's not the case, but the correction doesn't mean anything. It was on Wolf Blitzer's show. Now everybody, including me, I mean, I was like, Oh, wow. I didn't know about that. That sounds like a big case. Yeah, I mean, you're going to be confronting these questions. You and your colleagues will be confronting these questions in five or six weeks. And, you know, because I can think of a hypothetical that ties into, you know, the advancing of the the birther idea. You know, you have an election. Let's just say Joe Biden wins the election after all the mail-in ballots and, and absentee ballots are counted. If the president doesn't accept the results, you know, you're going to be confronted with advocates for the president's point of view wanting to come on TV and potentially say that there was fraud. And 
you know, will networks, will newspapers publish allegations without from people who bring absolutely no proof? I think it's not a given. I think that uh, I think that frequently the answer to that will be no. And um, and again, that is entirely unprecedented territory to think that you know people either the president himself or people representing the president could be saying things that are so irresponsibly false that you just can't yeah. you can't air them. Yeah, I give you a lot of credit for actually calling a lie a lie. I mean, I think it was two weeks ago or three weeks yep. ago, I might be mistaken, but uh, in an afternoon uh, briefing, I mean, you straight out to the president asked him why he was lying. And I think it's important. You know, look, here's what I say to, to, to my friends who are Trump supporters, and I have many that are, and I love speaking to them um, and trying to understand where they're coming from. It's not intellectually credible to say he's not lying to you. It is, cre- it is intellectually credible to say, I don't care. I have to accept that if someone says, I don't care. Yep. You, can't, you can't say he's not doing it. Yeah, and, you know, and, and I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, I, I generally don't use the word lie, but sometimes if it's just, in that case, it was crystal clear. Yeah. We, we, we knew that he knew the truth, said something else, and he even explained why he said something that wasn't true. That's called a lie. So, you know, you need to have clarity, but I, you know, I, I don't like the name calling. I don't like, I, I prefer to give you the facts as a, you know, and, and allow you to make up your own mind. And I don't want to immediately alienate everybody who, who loves the guy because I've, you know, I've gone out and said something they, they consider name calling. So I try to be value neutral in my language and let other people give other people the, everything they need to make up their own minds. But there are, but you have to be clear and you have to be honest and you have to be accurate. And if something is obviously a lie, it has to be called a lie. You know, as much as there's been an assault on the truth, on facts, on science, on your industry, you actually end the book, the epilogue, you are hopeful for our future. Can you talk about that? I I am. And it's can be very, that that hope can be... could be challenged during these times. Uh, but I describe um, um, getting a hold of the, the, the original, finding the long lost original charter of the White House Correspondents Association, this pretty incredible document that had been missing for, um, you know, since 2006, I think was when, was when it went missing. There had been a renovation in the, in the White House and it had been taken out and nobody knew where it went. And, and I got a call uh, an email actually from the White House press office, you know, just as I was taking over the presidency of the White House Correspondents Association last year saying, I think we found something here that belongs to you guys. And I was like, oh my God, this is this thing. I mean, so I brought it down to the National Archives because eventually it's going to find a home there where it'll be safer than being on the walls of the White House and uh, met with the archivist of the National of the United States. And we, we talked about getting it preserved and where we could put it and turn it into an exhibit. Uh, but he walked me through the rotunda of the National Archives. And this is where you see the original versions of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And the, the archives was closed at this point, so we're there alone. And, I, and I'm just thinking, and I'm looking at these documents, which we've all studied in school, and we all know, you know. But somehow seeing them, the, the real, the actual, where, where Jefferson put pen to paper, you look at the Declaration of Independence and you see those words we've all know, you know, all men are created. We hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal. And you realize Jefferson was a slave owner. Uh, you look at the Bill of Rights, you know, Madison, and, and you see First Amendment, uh, you know, right there, you know, freedom of press. And you realize that at that time, actually the press in the United States was a total disaster, there was a lot of fake news back then, actually, because you, you know the, the newspapers were all tied to political parties, and you know uh, there wasn't any of that rigorous fact checking you and I were talking about, and all kinds of crazy stuff got printed. Um, so we, we, the bottom line is those documents, which mean so much and have established, you know, uh, for all its flaws, the greatest democracy in the history of the world, were written by really profoundly flawed human beings. And were far short of their promise when they were written and still fall short of their promise, but point us, I think, in the right direction. And it just gave me hope that, that we've been through some horrible, awful challenges over the course of the history of this, of this republic um, and endured terrible, uh, terrible things. 
and I think that um, have managed to maintain a steady, not even, not consistent, but a steady progress. Um, and I'm hopeful that, uh, that those institutions that have been created and improved uh, and have been flawed uh, and have failed us at times, but have come back, will you know, we, we can continue that, that, that steady, if uneven march of progress. And, and, and we'll look back on this period and say, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> Jonathan, thanks a lot for your time today. I really appreciate it. This is a terrific conversation. The book is Front Row at the Trump Show. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, Ed, that was a fascinating conversation. Yeah, I really, I really like talking to him. I think that it, what I'm impressed by, we talked about it at the end, is that uh, two things. He's able to simultaneously have the courage to call the president out to the president's face when he has lied. He has talked to him about that. He's addressed it directly. But then he's also able to maintain hope in what the underlying institutions are, what they mean for us, and how they are going to be our future. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do something unusual, if, if you don't mind. I just want to read from his epilogue. And yeah, sort of please. finish our conversation that way. Because I think, you know, I hope people do get this book. Um, it's a great read. It really is. It tells so many good stories. And it puts, it's like I said, it really does put you in the halls of the West Wing. But, but I want to read this from the epilogue in, in case there are people who missed this, because I think it's important. These are Jonathan Carl's words at the end of his book. It's a reporter's job to be skeptical of those in power. But for all the spinning and stonewalling I have encountered in a career covering politics, the disregard for the truth that I have witnessed at the Trump White House is qualitatively different. I have seen senior officials in the Trump White House taking a cue directly from the president, willing to just make things up. And at the same time, the president himself has waged a sustained campaign to make people think the truth is a lie. Whenever he doesn't like the truth or it makes him look bad, This isn't the dodging and weaving you expect to see from politicians, including presidents. This is an assault on truth itself. Where previous presidents, Democrat and Republican, talked about exporting democracy and human rights around the world, the American president's words are now repeated by the voices of oppression. Instead of being a beacon of freedom, like Reagan's City on the Hill, an inspiration to those fighting against repression, the repressors now echo Trump's taunts of fake news as they jail reporters and attempt to silence voices of dissent in their countries. What is at stake is the survival of our nation as a place where differing views are tolerated and debated, where election results are trusted and accepted, where people in power are held accountable, and where the truth is accepted, even when it challenges our beliefs and our biases. The Trump show will eventually become a distant memory. The question is whether America will ever be the same again, whether we have become a nation of people who define truth in relative terms, accepting as true only what we want to believe. Yeah, there's a lot there, Ed. Uh, And uh, I think that this ties into several of our earlier conversations. You know, first and foremost, to all of our friends who um, join in on the course of attacking the press, uh, the question to them that should be posed is, well, then who would hold the government accountable? I mean, that is the first thing we should want. And we should all be very suspect and critical of people who want to remove the press from our news gathering. Uh, It's very dangerous. But that also goes, you know, the press is part of the institutions of democracy. And um, that goes to, again, what Timothy Snyder said about protecting our institutions. I'm going to ask you, sorry to to put you on the spot, but I'm going to ask you to give that quote again that made us interested in Timothy Snyder in the first place. Do not break the rules that hold a republic together because one day you will need order. And do not destroy the opponents who respect those rules because one day you will miss them. And that's the point is that the press falls into the second category there. They are the people who defend those rules, the norms of truth and science and facts. Uh, and if we're, if we're not going to support them, um, we'll be lost when we – when, when we need the most, which is how we create government accountability. This has been The Head and The Heart. I'm Perry Rogers. And I'm Ed Borgato. Thanks for listening. You can also listen to us on Podcast One, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review and leave a comment as to who you'd like us to talk to. Click that fifth star and leave a, leave a review. 
and follow us on Twitter at head underscore heart underscore pod. And we'd also like to thank Casey Morris, our producer, for the fine job he does for us every week. Thanks. Thanks, Ed.